0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Nearly all the chief architects and main supporting players of the attempted coup now find themselves within the vice grip of the criminal law. The determination of their fates will not be swift or cheap, And their hopes for evading all punishment are remote. That goes for Trump himself, who faces state prosecutions and civil lawsuits, in addition to the two federal indictments that he could squash were he to win the presidency. In a week filled with procedural twists and turns, the spotlight shone brightest on a high-stakes legal showdown involving former Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who took the stand in support of his motion to move his Fulton County case to federal court. It was a gambit that aims ultimately at a motion for immunity that would get him off the hook altogether for the state charges. The court has promised to rule swiftly for now, Meadows' case remains in state court. Meanwhile, in federal court in the District of Columbia, Judge Tanya Chutkin set a trial date of March 2024 for the January 6 related federal charges against Trump. Chutkin continues to manage the case with understated confidence and a firm hand that suggests that if and when Trump violates his conditions of release, Especially should he try to intimidate witnesses, she will not hesitate to bring down the full weight of the law. In other news, Rudy Giuliani's bizarre downward spiral accelerated when a federal court judged him liable for defamation of Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and socked him with sanctions for discovery abuse. Giuliani now has a damages trial in addition to the criminal charges against him in Fulton County, which charge him for violating RICO, the state version of the very statute that he rode to fame as United States Attorney some 40 years ago. And the national sickness with guns was on full display, with two more high-profile only-in-America killings once again raising the question of what the country needs to do to free itself from this pestilence. To break down the legal, political, and cultural scrums that only proliferate as Trump remains front and center, we are fortunate to welcome two of the best legal minds in the country and a pretty darn smart former comedian. And they are Al Franken the host of the Al Franken podcast, one of the best and most popular podcasts on politics in the country. He, of course, served as the United States Senator from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. Politics, of course, was his second career after his rise to fame as a writer and comedian. Senator Franken was one of the original writers for Saturday Night Live, where he worked for 15 seasons, and he has won five Emmys for writing and producing and written seven books, including four countem four number one New York Times bestsellers. Thank you as always for joining Talking Feds, Senator Al Franken.
1: Always great to be with you, Harry. I feel a little bit out of my league here with three great attorneys, but I played one on a sketch.
0: And you're like every man. Then your normal role, just the down to earth Midwestern. That's what they say about me. Yes, that's what they call you. All right,
2: and we're just here to say what what can we do for Al Frank? There you that's
0: go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, because darn it, he's smart enough. Oh my. He's, God. Okay, okay. George Conway, a prominent American attorney, a contributing columnist of the Washington Post, and a frequent commentator on CNN and MSNBC, but. He is also a co-founder of the Lincoln Project uh, and a founding member of Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers dedicated to advocacy for the rule of law in the age of Trump. Welcome back, George.
2: Thank you.
0: And Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU, the faculty director of Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network, and a leading expert in family law constitutional law, and reproductive rights and justice. Melissa is an author of Cases on Reproductive Rights and Justice, the first casebook to cover the field of that topic. She is an MSNBC contributor and a frequent writer for national publications. Melissa, thanks as always for joining.
3: Thanks for having me, Harry.
0: All right, so our daily news is now being delivered with a side order of federal court procedure. Let's start with Mark Meadows maneuvering in Fulton County. So he took the stand last week in an evidentiary hearing in support of his motion to move his case to federal court to remand it. It was a big risk, and most every commentator, including me, thought he wouldn't do it. What was his thinking? Honestly, I have no idea. You think it's an obvious blunder, George? I don't think it's an
2: obvious blunder. There must be some reason to it. I mean, he's got a very, very smart lawyer, George Terwilliger, who knows what he's doing. I mean, obviously, for these defendants, the U.S. District Court is marginally better for them because the jury pool extends out. To the suburbs, but it doesn't extend all the way through, as I understand it, the Northern District of Georgia, which would include Marjorie Taylor Green's district out in La La Land, um, in the northwest corner of the state. But it's a better pool than Fulton County proper, but it's frankly not that much better as I understand it. The only thing I can think of is he's he's hoping that he gets severed from some of the other people, but I don't think that helps him because he's in the middle of it and then. If he gets removal, you know, maybe even Trump gets removal. So we're talking the supremacy clause, right? There's a specific provision, and I know, Harry, you've probably dealt with it being a former prosecutor, a specific provision in the U.S. Code that permits the removal of civil and criminal actions against officers of the United States who are acting under color of their office. Now, that doesn't mean that they have actual immunity, but it means that there's an, they, have a, they have an argument, and so his argument is, you know, I was down there on behalf of the President of the United States and doing his bidding as Chief of Staff of the White House. The problem was he was doing something that was political, that frankly violated the Hatch Act and was beyond the scope of his duties as President. He doesn't have any further ability to make the election counting and all the details about elections the purview of the President of the United States. It's really not, it's the purview of the states. And then there are, there's a congressional overlay, but it really doesn't give the president any role. But he's got an argument in the sense that the standard for removal is, and it's important to remember, is a little bit lighter than the standard for actually getting protected. So he could win the battle, this battle and lose the war.
0: I like where I was going with this because I think it is a two-step move for him, because as George points out... Yeah, we tend to conflate it sometimes, you know? Yeah, I mean, nicer seats and a slightly better jury pool and no TV doesn't seem commensurate with the big risk he was taking. But if you see it as a sort of first step to what really would be a total home run for him actually being able to establish immunity, then it seems possibly cogent.
3: It could be the case, like you know, assuming that Mark Meadows is able to convince this district court judge that some of these acts alleged in the indictment were undertaken pursuant to his office. You could then I think go back to Fonnie Willis, who could say, Okay, let me remove those acts through a superseding indictment. Um, so they don't actually have to be charged, and then you're back in state court anyway. So it does seem to be a big risk. And the only real question is like Is it worth the prospect of maybe garnering immunity? Or is it simply just a delay, delay, delay tactic to push this out even further? And again, he's not going to be the only one who seeks removal to federal court. I mean, I think this is going to be a pretty standard play for those defendants who aren't able to just like plead out and deal with this.
0: He's got the least laughable, right?
3: Yes, he is the least laughable, but I think they're all going to try this in some regard. If for no other reason than the removal may be a means of delaying. And if you are able to remove at least some of these to federal court, you do get the broader jury pool. And again, it's not a complete slam dunk. You know, you're not guaranteed, but I think you don't necessarily get all of the black voters in Atlanta proper like you do in Fulton County. And maybe that's an important choice for some of them.
2: The delay is only limited because it it appears that Judge Jones understands and is willing to basically move at the speed of light here to get this resolved.
0: But he hasn't appealed, though, doesn't he, George?
2: Yeah, but the 11th Circuit, remember how expedited the appeal they had in the... Documents case, yeah. Yeah, the documents case.
3: But George, they didn't know they were going to wind up with Judge Jones. There's actually a pretty strong chance they could have wound up with one of the Trump judges initially. So it could have just, yeah, it could have just been a bet to get one of those Trump judges.
0: That
2: was part of the play, absolutely.
3: Yeah.
0: Mr. Everyman, what's your thinking about this? Well, getting off scot-free
1: with the Supremacy Clause aside, I think he doesn't want to be on TV. Because <laughs> this is a pretty ugly case, and they're going to be playing that tape that he's on. And that's a this is a Rico case, which you usually think of a mob case. That's a mob phone call. That's like the Raffensburger call, where he's basically saying that if you don't do what I'm saying, this could be a, a federal case against you, and you could be in a lot of trouble. To me, It's like they're knocking off a liquor store, (laughs) and uh, Trump is in the passenger seat, and his campaign lawyer is driving, and Meadows is in the
2: back seat. Meadows is on the phone getting directions. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I was
0: just getting directions. That's that's the perfect analogy for him. Well, how do you think his testimony went? Was it credible that, oh, I'm just doing chief of staffy kind of things?
1: No. I also think he he had to answer some questions he probably wouldn't want to answer and probably didn't know the answers to that create some jeopardy for him.
3: There was a kind of Downton Abbey quality to the way he described his job. Like, I mean, he was basically like, I was Trump's valet. Like, <laughs> I was basically there to just service him in every possible way, which is why- 24-7. All of, yeah, all of this stuff is within <laughs> the scope of my duties. I mean, which I think a lot of people would find really interesting. I mean, I think Ron Klain is probably thinking like, whoa, what kind yeah. of chief of staff <laughs> job did you have? <laughs>
2: like- <laughs> Melissa, if he gets reelected, we are
0: all going to be in that position.
3: Yeah, I mean, but there was this moment where I was like, oh my God, this is like the Earl of Grantham.
0: <laughs> it puts me in mind of a, of a famous phrase no man is a hero to his valet.
3: That's <laughs> exactly right.
0: I'm from Minnesota and it's valet.
3: No, no, no. For Downton Abbey, it's valet.
0: We've tumbled on an important question here, but we'll, <laughs> we'll table it. Hey, I know how to say Minnesota.
3: Right? That's how you say it, Minnesota.
2: Minnesota. 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 Oh, Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) But let's go to the vast valet class because we are starting to see cracks, right? I mean, it's part of what Melissa said. There are five people now who say they want to remove and three who want speedy trials. And those equal, you know, cracks in the ranks who are looking to go their own way. So- That trend, which I think is only going to increase, as Melissa says, how does that impact Trump, you know, the people having individual strategies that maybe depart from him?
3: I don't think that's great for him. But, you know, I also think there's a risk to Fannie Willis, too. I mean, a big part of charging them under this RICO statute is that it allows her to tell this narrative of a wide-ranging and expansive criminal syndicate. And if people peel off and she loses some of these defendants, it may be harder for the jurors to understand the way in which all of these different elements were working in tandem to advance this criminal syndicate. So, you know, it's not just a risk for Donald Trump that rats are jumping off the ship. It is a risk to Fonnie Willis because she has to tell a coherent story and maybe it's harder to be more coherent if all of the parties aren't still co-defendants.
1: In my role as someone who doesn't know shit (laughs) <laughs> about
0: some of this from shinola how do you Shinoa. Yeah, Shinoa okay. we just pronounced okay, correctly okay. right? perfect there's shit and there's shine i'm sorry go ahead
1: if those other defendants go state evidence, do don't they testify anyway i mean can't she put the whole
2: court on anyway i don't understand i mean it's going to be a different trial obviously for the reasons that melissa says but she can still co- charge the entire racketeering conspiracy all the way down to the fake electors. Let's say the fake electors plead, or some of them. And if they're cooperating, which would be part of a deal, she could put them on anyway, and it it might be better. The other factor is you don't have 18 defense lawyers jumping up and down every time a witness is put on the stand. You'll you'll get it down to six or seven, maybe. I'm just wild guess. So there are some advantages,
1: I guess. Whose advantage is that too? Is having fewer defense lawyers jumping up is funny. Well, yeah. So I don't necessarily see the disadvantage of these guys. Uh, I think
0: it cuts both ways. On the one hand, they're pointing fingers at one another, and we're getting that dynamic. Even the electors are saying, "I took orders from the president." On the other, you get you reach a level, and Rico is already built in for this of bedlam and confusion. And there is a risk that a jury is a little bewildered and finds a reasonable doubt there. So all the better that some go state's evidence and testify. And I mean, defendants normally want separate. They can tell their story without the others pointing at them. And it's very hard to sort of figure how this is shaping up. One point I wanted to make is, you know, her previous RICO trial with the educators was like six to eight months We've already noted that Meadows might have an appeal and Trump as well, anyone who tries to remove. And on the other hand, she's now in front of the court even today saying with the speedy trial motion of Chesbro and others, we'll try all of them starting in November. You know, it strikes me as a complete fog whether there's going to be a trial in November and, and another one in 2026, to pick just a date. And her prospects for being the trial or one of two trials that actually occur of Trump before the November 2024 election seems pretty murky to me. What what do you guys think? I have a, th- a quick theory on this. Yeah.
1: That, remember, she said that the uh, uh, indictments would be imminent. And that was like seven or eight months ago. But I think what she did... I can't remember that far back. (laughs) It's a special
0: relativity of
1: district attorneys, yeah. I think what she did was say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get this all together so I can go like that. I see. And that's why why I think this is going to go fast when she gets it going. So that's my theory. That's my
2: theory. Absolutely agree with that. They're ready for trial. But it's not up to them alone, right? Mm. No, but that gives them an enormous power and leverage because they're not going to back up if if somebody says, we need to go to trial next week. If they're ready to go, it's like, great. (laughs) And if they end up having to try the case more than once, well, I guess both sides will learn things from a first trial if there's a second trial after a severance or something.
0: Does Trump have any cards to play to force a significant delay, do you think? Because that's what we're really focused on, whether he's in the dock He's just taking every day he can, and he's got 30 days to move for removal. He will appeal. He's got an appeal of right. He will seek cert. That's got to be a few months, no?
2: I don't know. I mean, that appeal from Judge Cannon's special master order was resolved, I think, stunningly quickly. But, you know, the chief judge was on that panel. He was actually on the Trump shortlist And he's a great guy. I know him personally, Judge Pryor. And he put the rocket on that thing, and then he basically just hammered home, no one is above the law. And that's, I mean, I don't see why they can't do that again. I think that judges all over the place, except the one exception, perhaps in Fort Myers, Florida, I won't name names. They've had it with him, and they know what a threat he is to them and the rule of law and our system generally. They're not going to play this game with him, I think, I hope.
3: I think the one risk is that not that any of these judges are out to force a lengthy delay. Although, I mean, you could have one the appeal to the Eleventh Circuit. You might have a request for the Eleventh Circuit to look at this on banc if one of the judges decides that like it's something they should all hear. That could delay things significantly. I think the and then obviously there will be an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court from the Eleventh Circuit as well from Donald Trump, and that could take some time to resolve. I, I think the real question is. Not that the delay is going to be super lengthy, but is it going to be lengthy enough to butt up against an election that might be seen as influencing the election? And there might be some questions there.
0: I think with all the, the confusion in, in Georgia, well, actually, withdrawn, counselor. That's what you say, Al, when you like wish you had started. I on watch a different TV. Way. I'm going to object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's take her official position right now, which is. Nobody's been severed out. That's a different kind of standard from Speedy Trial. We have one trial set in stone because it's by the Speedy Trial Act in Georgia. That's jury selection in late October for Ken Chesbro. And she says, so right now we want our position is all 19 go to trial, you know, end of October. So the jury starts sitting early November. Any chance something like that? Goes down? Yeah, and
1: especially if a number of them, you know, go states' evidence and it gets down to eight. Mm-hmm. And it's more manageable or something like that. That's uh, I'm going back to where we almost started. But that's kind of me hoping that happens.
3: When I say that, you know, I worry about maybe the court wondering that they're too close in time to the election. I'm thinking about could this Supreme Court with its six to three conservative supermajority, View a question involving a candidate, a credible candidate, possibly the person with the Republican nomination at that point, being also under indictment in a state and then trying to remove it to federal court. Wondering if there's almost like a Purcell principle for presidents that the court sort of dreams up and invokes in that moment, which I don't think is really an outside chance at all, I mean, given the composition of the court
0: you think it's a good chance?
3: I think it's something that gets discussed, certainly by three of them. Whether they can get two more people to agree is a different story. But I mean, I do think that is a real question. Like, will they view this in in much the same way in voting rights cases? Anything too close to an election? Like, they're just like, we got to stay our hand. And like, maybe it's the same kind of thing.
0: Can I give a final question on uh, Fulton County, which is just... The saber rattling by Georgia Republicans to reprimand or oust her with this new bill. What do you think? Is there any shot and would it, in fact, disable the case? Or at this point, as every man Al said, it's just all, all constructed, ready to go with or without her. She
1: can manage this from the locker room. If she gets kicked out of the game. She can manage it from the locker room.
3: I don't know if they'll pursue it. I don't know if they'll be successful. I think the optics of pursuing it are really terrible for them. I will say we should note the commonalities between this measure that the Georgia legislature has undertaken to reprimand errant prosecutors, or what they view as errant prosecutors, and similar steps that are being taken in other red state legislatures to wrest control of school districts from blue cities, um, to wrest control of the conduct of elections in blue cities. I mean, this is sort of a standard move in a red state legislature. It's one of the consequences of extreme partisan gerrymandering that make these legislatures less responsive to the electorate and give them this outsized power that they can then wield to really limit the mechanisms and infrastructures of other parts of the democracy.
1: Look what happened in Tennessee on on guns or the state legislature.
0: No, it's an excellent point. And, And, you know, also red houses of Congress where, you know, right now Jim Jordan is trying to make trouble for Judge Chutkin. All right, so focus briefly on the D.C. case before Judge Chutkin. So she set a trial date this week of March 2024, What do you think? How is she handling Trump so far? Is she the boss, as it were? Oh, wow, she is.
3: She's a Jamaican woman. Yes, she is the boss.
0: I
2: want to start the Judge Chuckkin fan club. I just think she has conducted herself in an exemplary fashion thus far.
1: What happens if Trump defies her orders not to talk about the case, etc., etc., and he just defies her and... She doesn't want to actually put him in prison for even a day. Can she sanction or fine his
0: lawyers? How does that work? I don't think she can do the lawyers. She can put pressure on the lawyers as she has. But Laurel said he'll comply, but if he doesn't. Right now, he's
2: kind of sticking to trashing the judge and the prosecutor. And I don't think any judge, even if they could argue that, that that was covered by these By these pretrial release conditions, I don't think a judge is going to put somebody in, put him in the pokey for that, because it looks like it's too personal. But if he ever, ever loses it one night and attacks Mark Meadows or something, there'll be a hearing the next day, and she's going to read him the Riot Act and basically say, "One more twitch, and I'm going to put, I will put you in the pokey," and then I think she'll have to do it. I think that's exactly right. You got to let the guy hang himself. The lawyers are going to say, "Your Honor, we provided a copy we're of trying. the transcript yeah. to him, and he's very literate and he read it." Oh no, they're going to say, "They're going to say, no, we conveyed to him the substance of the order. He signed this document, Your Honor," and, and they probably say, "We're, we're going to have to resign." And then he'll she'll say, "No, you don't."
0: Exactly. <laughs> that that's right. That's the showdown that could be coming. But I agree with George that. The witness intimidation line would be the one that would really make her, uh rain, rain with fire. I would say you have to
2: show up here at, at 5 o'clock tomorrow, okay? Rain, shine, no matter what. Fire up your jet.
0: You, his Trump here.
2: Yes, U P O one one 1135809.
1: And is it the first time one day in the pokey?
2: His bail would get revoked. It's not like a contempt sanction where he... Now, can... And his Secret Service go with him
1: to the pokey.
0: There are conditions of release. I think, Al, as a practical matter, it, I don't think he would be in there indefinitely, but it, yeah. yeah. I just want to second George's motion about Chuck and, and say she's not only been firm, but I, she's also calm and she's sometimes kind of light and funny in just the right way. She's really comes across as not tight or vindictive or power hungry, but just running the the courtroom.
2: I mean, the perfect draw for this case, I think, in so many ways.
3: She's the perfect draw. We should also note that some real nut cases have been targeting her, and her security has been amped up, so.
0: And I'll say one thing. It's not just her here, right? At the very first hearing, there were the the other judges from the court. That's not for spectatorial interest. They, I think they are seeing this you know, as a judgment on the court overall. And I think she's consulting with them liberally about where she can push and not. And it's a really good court that way. That's one of the advantages of being a judge
2: in a court like that with a lot of smart judges is you can just sort of bounce stuff off them. And they're sticking together on this, I'm sure. It's great. Contrast Judge Cannon, who's out in in wherever by herself, and she has no one to talk to, and she's, it's it like makes the mistakes. polar opposite, and yeah. makes mistakes, yeah.
0: All right, close out on on this, which is timing here. So asked about whether he had any big cards to play in Fulton County for a significant delay. Same question here.
3: I think some of the evidentiary questions are going to raise questions about executive privilege and executive immunity, and I think those could be questions of first impression that are not only heard in her court, but then filter up and will be heard and possibly even go to the Supreme Court. That could be a delay.
0: There have been such questions that already have gone through the court. There's been Trump v. Thompson, et cetera. There's a whole body of case law that's behind the curtain that we haven't seen, these sealed
2: decisions by Judge Howell. She can rely on that for precedent. And then the D.C. Circuit, the last time one of Judge Howell's decisions on, I think it was executive privilege or something went up there, they basically... Decided the case in a day. I think they're done with this. I think they're really gonna, they're gonna hold his feet to the fire. One of the things I was hoping for when the time came for her to set a trial date is I was hoping for March or April, but thinking that the worst case should be June or July. Everything slips, right? Everything slips. I mean, I'm, my, my experience is civil, but everything slips mainly because judges are busy. And that you don't have that problem here. But even if there's a a couple of things that kind of have to go up and down, and and she can give a couple of extensions just to bolster the record that she's being reasonable.
3: I hope you're right, George. And again, I think this is why Jack Smith purposely only indicted one person, and everyone Mm -hmm. else is an unindicted co-conspirator, I mean, to keep this as streamlined as possible. But I don't think we can underestimate a motivated individual with a talent for delay who has every incentive to work the system.
0: All right. Enough for now. And we've created in Talking Feds a policy of trying really hard not to talk only about Donald Trump, because otherwise we could do nothing but for the next... How is it even? It's 2023 and we're still talking about him full time. All right. So... (laughs) Goodbye for this hour, Donald Trump. Let's talk about some really sort of sane statesman, beginning with Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> so a federal judge clobbered him last week. I mean, wow! In the lawsuit brought by the two Georgia election workers that he vilified in his campaign of lies about Georgia votes, Giuliani, who says he's broke, has to pay one hundred thirty thousand just for the discovery sanctions. But he's now been found liable on defamation, so it only comes to damages, including punitive damages, which may increase because he's hiding his money. So let's start here. This absolute shellacking, what is it, if anything, portend for his criminal liability, do you think?
3: I think it's definitely related to the criminal case. I mean, the fact that he would not participate in the discovery process is because he is facing this criminal exposure and that led to what's you know basically a default judgment in favor of the poll workers so he's now on the hook for civil liability and there's the possibility of damages but he hasn't turned over the evidence that could be really inculpatory for him in the criminal case so this may be kind of like you know Pennywise and Pound Foolish in some respects, but also maybe absolutely masterful with regard to the criminal case that's still out there.
0: Well, he may be out of
1: Pounds pretty soon. That's where I was going. I don't know if he has Pounds to be foolish with anymore.
3: Even if he just has empty pockets, he has a civil judgment against him. Whether he can pay it or not is a different thing, but he hasn't admitted into evidence in the civil case information that could really be problematic for him in the criminal case. And so maybe this is a win-win for him.
1: This is a case for if you're an alcoholic, you should get treatment. <laughs> yeah.
3: It's kind of
0: serious. You know, the fans are questioning everybody about his being drunk on election day.
1: Sounds like it's been a problem for a, a while and, and it's tragic.
0: Well, is that it? What the hell happened? to Rudy Giuliani was, was the previous heroic portrait false.
1: I think in part it was false, but again, this is years and years of this disease has taken its toll on him. I remember not that long after nine 11, he hosted SNL and he did a great job. He was funny and there was something winning about him, uh, but he has become someone who is pathetic and uh, gross and awful he's screwed he's gonna be in prison and, he, and he's going to not be able to pay any bills he's gonna have to sell everything he has that's that's pretty bad that's pretty sad for a guy he'll be
2: disbarred
1: hasn't he already been disbarred in new york
2: not fully disbarred. He was suspended. Oh, okay. And in D.C. they made a recommendation. I don't think the court has acted on it yet, I
1: think. I don't know. And if he isn't disbarred, it's like, who's going to... Uh, you know what? I think I'll hire Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> yeah.
0: And of course, he's going to go down, it looks like, on Rico. This Shakespearean irony, the guy who used Rico to bring down the mob. The turn happens a few years down the line, and he's... No, It's so biz- it's so bizarre for someone like me, like... Uh, Like Melissa,
2: I clerked on the Second Circuit. And when I clerked on the Second Circuit, the guy was U.S. attorney. So basically, a quarter of the briefs were from the Southern District, uh, red briefs, and some of them were RICO cases. Every brief is like, Rudolph W. Giuliani, United States attorney. I mean, it was like, it's just so mind-boggling to see him now.
1: One thing I'd like to say is what he did to Ruby Freeman and her daughter. It was so reprehensible, so disgraceful, ruined their lives probably forever in certain ways. I mean, that's PTSD, what they went through. And you saw their testimony. It's going to be interesting because we presumably will hear their testimony in this RICO case. And this will be on TV. And I saw the January 6th hearings on TV and still 70% of uh, republicans who are say, they're going to vote in the primary believe that biden won the election and this just goes to alternative facts and fake news
2: alternative what no never mind
0: oh right oh yeah
1: <laughs> what i'm talking about is we are going to have these trials and it's going to be on tv and everyone's going to see it alternative facts are needed according to some people because there's fake news so as a result nothing is true so you could say you know the earth is round like this cantaloupe and someone go nope it's round like this plate we
2: live in a world we live in a bizarre world isn't
1: it but it's because people are not going to be watching this who should be watching this and they're going to be seeing other stuff. And they're going to be seeing it on Fox, and they're going to be seeing it on OAN, and they're going to be seeing it elsewhere. And our country is—it's friggin' scary because uh, you think, "Oh my goodness, this is so great. We're going to see this RICO trial in <laughs>
0: Florida." Well, we are. We are. Thus spake every man. One quick thing on Giuliani, George. Let me direct it to you from your civil experience. So, as Melissa says. He basically punts on liability because he doesn't want to give up any information. So they're going to damages. What can he do? What can he? I mean, does he have any way of not getting a hellacious jury verdict? Does he have any arguments even? I don't think so. I mean, he, the best he can do is have his lawyer
2: cross-examine Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss on you know the harm. You're doing okay now, aren't you? Right. Right. I mean, and you got you know when people invite you on TV or they do that. I mean, there's going to be some. Stuff. I mean, you got to be really, really, really careful about how you do that. But I think at the end of the day, Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss are going to like the neighborhood. 65th and Madison is really, really nice. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) And it's priced
2: to move. It's priced to move. And and also, it's like there aren't many MAGA types there, and everybody's there is going to want to take them out every night. I mean, they're going to, you know, there's so many great restaurants, and I think they're going to love it. They have a
0: long social calendar, I'm sure. Oh, yes. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar is about the National Labor Relations Board, an independent federal agency that protects the rights of private sector employees to join together to improve their wages and working conditions. And to explain the NLRB, we welcome Gia Tolentino. Gia Tolentino is a screenwriter, best-selling author, and a staff writer at The New Yorker. Her book, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion, was an instant New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize, for Best First Books. It also was named one of the Best Books of the Year by the New York Public Library, the New York Times Book Review, the Washington Post, NPR, the Chicago Tribune, GQ, and the Paris Review. In 2020, she received a Whiting Award as well as the Jeanette Hyen Ballard Prize. So I give you Gia Tolentino on the National Labor Relations Board.
4: In 1935, Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act to give private sector employees the right to collective bargaining. The act established the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, as an independent executive agency. The jurisdiction of the NLRB covers the entire private sector and employees of the U.S. Postal Service. NLRB's caste activity is managed by over 32 regional offices with headquarters in Washington, D.C., The disputes of other public employees, as well as railroad, airline, and agricultural workers, are handled by other agencies, such as the US Federal Labor Relations Authority. The NLRB has a bifurcated structure. On one side is the board itself. Composed of five members with five-year terms, the board is a quasi-judicial body that decides labor cases. Board members can be removed from office only for neglect of duty or malfeasance in office. The other side is the general counsel, an independent investigator who prosecutes unfair labor practices and supervises NLRB regional offices. The general counsel and all members of the board are appointed by the president with approval by the Senate. The board exercises multiple functions. Perhaps most importantly, it can investigate and adjudicate labor disputes between employers and employees. That function includes overseeing secret ballot elections by employees on whether or not to adopt a union and protecting workers' right to strike. Second, it can decide disputes between employers and employees. Those cases are decided by an NLRB administrative law judge whose decision can be appealed to a federal court of appeals but under a deferential standard of review. Third, the agency can engage in rulemaking in areas under its purview. There have been important shifts in the powers of the NLRB since its founding. In 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act banned several types of strikes and limited the activities of unions, including allowing states to adopt right-to-work laws to opt out of federal labor law. The result was to somewhat curb the powers of the NLRB. For Talking Feds, I'm Gia Tolentino.
0: Thank you so much, Gia Tolentino. You can find Gia's book, Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion, at any major bookstore, including Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union.
5: Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address, it's central to all of life's opportunities what services, healthcare jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families, and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access, To safe and stable housing, visit ACLU.org.
0: All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
6: Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we break out the three types of vodka to see if there's a clear difference. Vodka is typically a colorless, flavorless spirit, served neat and freezer chilled. Simple, right? But long before the shot glasses are topped off and toasts are shouted, there's a fermenting process. For vodka, that process involves distilling an organic base like barley, rye, wheat, even potatoes or corn to make one of three types of vodka, plain, flavored, and infused. Rye can add a heavier texture and spice. Barley may be a little lighter and mild, while potatoes can add a creamy mouthfeel. Unflavored is the simplest and most traditional form of vodka with a mixture of 40% ethanol and 60% water. Flavored vodka has recently become extremely popular, adding flavors that range from fruit to dessert-inspired options like chocolate, A charcoal-filtered vodka provides a smoother taste, perfect for creating a chocolate martini that tastes as great as it sounds. Lastly, there's infused vodka, also known as botanical vodka, where the distillers infuse the vodka by adding ingredients like herbs, flowers, spices, and fruit, which are steamed into the spirit during the distillation process. It's an excellent choice to dial your drink in any flavor direction you want. The best part of them all is that you don't have to travel the world to find the greatest vodkas. Your local Total Wine & More has a large selection of every type and flavor, so all you have to do is clear out a little extra room in your freezer. So find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers!
0: Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate.
6: All right, a
0: few minutes to talk about, speaking of dismal subjects, we have another flurry of rampage gun attacks. We are at a rate of two a week. I don't know if if people are aware of that. That's a normal week in this country. We had a 21-year-old in Jacksonville enter a dollar store looking to kill any blacks he could see and killing three. We had at UNC a graduate student killing a faculty member, I, you know, two situations that so obviously people would have gotten angry in another society, but four people wouldn't be dead. And, you know, on the political side, we're in this seemingly bottomless rut. Each episode, it's heart-rending, and then the Republican doublespeak is infuriating. Let's try to shed some light on the pathologies, just make some rational Discussion about this, and here was my question, Senator Franken: Is it really the NRA that makes this untouchable in Congress and for Republican state legislatures?
1: They're captured by their electorate. I talked to some of my former Republican colleagues, and they're captured by their electorate.
0: Not the NRA. It's well, the
1: gun lobby, of course. There's a lot of money in guns, and there are 20 million, I believe, now. Assault weapons in our country, 20 million. You know, I was there when Sandy Hook happened and I couldn't believe that we could not get assault weapons banned. They were banned in, in 94. We had a chance to do it again. They did in 2004. They fell short of that. The gun company started developing these weapons that were for military. In Sandy Hook, the killer used a uh, weapon that was designed to kill people as efficiently as possible in a small room it was a military weapon a Bushmaster and we couldn't get that done then we couldn't get background checks done then in Valdi, the police were afraid of the friggin gun so they wouldn't go in in there and and stop him this is sick And we have to get rid of these guns, and we're not going to
0: stop right there, Mister Everyman. We have to get rid of these guns, and we're not going to. So, is that right? Is there what has to happen before there is any viable possibility of meaningful gun reform?
1: There would have to be a political change. You'd have to elect enough Democrats in the Senate. You'd have to have a Democratic president and a Democratic House, and you'd have to have another. Evaldi, which you're going to have, so a moment may come, but it's hard to see. They did it in Australia, and it worked.
6: I think
3: Senator Franken's exactly right about sort of shaping majoritarian politics, and I think that actually is coming. I think there are so many young people who have grown up in this culture of run, fight, hide, and they're tired of it. So I think majoritarian culture is changing around guns, and there is a growing group of individuals, I would say a silent majority of people who are like sensible gun laws make sense. The institution we have not talked about in all of this is the United States Supreme Court, which has done its level best under the 6-3 to conservative supermajority to expand the scope of the Second Amendment beyond the plain text of that amendment and to not only bless the prospect of an almost unfettered right to keep and bear arms in the home for purposes of self-defense, but just last term, or two terms ago rather, in 2022, went even beyond what they had previously done to translate that right to keep and bear arms to basically allow for carrying arms in public places. I mean, we cannot discount how the court has essentially facilitated a backdrop in which even if the majority of Americans say we want sensible gun control and their representatives are responsive enough to actually do something about it, the court and this new jurisprudence will effectively stop it. It's basically, they are playing a long game that installs minoritarian interests, even when we have a majority.
1: Melissa, can I ask you a question? Were you clerking for Sotomayor in the appellate court when Heller came before her?
3: I was earlier than that.
1: You know who was the fifth vote in that was Roberts. Roberts was the fifth vote in that. And that was a bad, bad day and a bad decision. And there's been a number of them. And now, of course, McConnell, what he did with Garland and Coney Barrett has shaped the balance in a way that is obscene. And so you're absolutely right, Melissa, this is the court. But I don't know what the Congress can do.
0: George, I want to give you the last word because you remain a good conservative and libertarian and you maybe have different feelings on this or at least a different vantage point of some of your colleagues Are there things we're missing and is there a silver lining or prospects for some kind of advances here?
2: I actually think there's a lot of room still left for reasonable gun regulation. Most of the things that people are talking about strike me as perfectly constitutional. I don't think the Constitution guarantees anybody the right to own an AR-15 or, or its equivalent. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to hold that. You know, and the ghost guns issue, which is becoming a big, big, big issue. The Second Amendment, I don't think, I mean, I haven't read the cases in a long time, I confess, but I can't imagine the Second Amendment prohibits in any way reasonable regulations of how guns are manufactured, because that is not a regulation of, Anyone keeping and bearing arms, and I know you maybe you can analogize to other some other rights, but I don't think those, those analogies are going to fly. I mean, they should be able to regulate how guns are made, and I'll, I'll bet—just guessing again, wild-ass guess—I could be completely wrong—that there were probably colonial-era regulations on, on you know how you made muskets, which would show that just because you're saying you, you you can't make a musket with this, so you have to do it a certain way in North New Hampshire in 17 something. And again, I'm guessing, could be wrong, it's not an infringement of the right to bear arms. It was never understood as such, I'm hoping.
0: In fact, a new study was dropped just today that's showing a, a fair bit of regulation in the 18th, 19th century. But So let's say it's true that these things on the table are, would not be unconstitutional. What do you see having to happen for the political logjam to be broken?
2: You know, I'm kind of with both although there is are slightly in tension with the senator and the professor here. And I think it's going to be very, very tough. It's not just the money that the NRA has. It's their ability of them and others who profit from ginning people up, their ability to push the buttons of that small portion or the significant portion of the red state electorate that believes that, oh my God, Joe Biden's going to knock on my door and take my guns away tomorrow. And so they really know how to do that. On the other hand, the point that Melissa makes about the changing, you know, they're absolutely right. They say there's going to be a generational change here. And the other point to remember is a lot of this stuff is happening in red states. I mean, frankly, the, I think the gun death rate is much higher in red states. And again, you know, I mean, Texas, for example, is turning, right? Texas is going to be a blue state someday.
1: I've heard that for a long time, so.
2: Well, it's an urban state now. It's a different state than it was 10 years ago. It's going to be a different state 10 or 15 years from now. So I do think there is some, some hope, but it's going to take a while. And unfortunately and sadly, there will be, as Senator Franken says, more Uvalde's and the horrors that, that come with them. But I think that's going to be part of it. It's going to, we have to, we're going to have to see this happening. And I think it will impact the, how the court deals with this.
0: All right, we'll leave it on that note. We just have a minute left for our Talking Five feature. We have a slightly different question here instead of the straight-out answer. It's five words or fewer. Five words or fewer still applies, but Trump's mugshot, everyone picture Trump's mugshot, and the question is, or the demand is, caption this. Five words or fewer. Anyone?
1: Practiced... By staring at Melania. <laughs> <laughs>
3: hey
0: guys, you never want to follow a comedian. I know I'm with gonna have to.
3: Fun. So mine is inspired by Peloton and Cody Rigsby. So do you ride a Peloton, Harry?
0: No, but I have many friends who do and really do swear by it. But this right. is not an endorsement.
3: This is not an endorsement, but Cody Rigsby is like one of my favorite instructors yeah. on the platform, and he always says, and I thought when I saw the mugshot, I thought of this, um, fix your wig, find your light, and then he says bitch afterwards, But so that's seven, but <laughs> <laughs> fix your wig, find your light.
2: All right. I don't really have anything. I'm, I'm left speechless by this question.
0: By the way, I, d- I just want to trust my admiration for your hippie side that is showing there. You got the candles. Oh, and the guitar, I think next time yeah, you we're, we're you, little... you
2: recommended me a I mean a, a uh, you
0: know a um... a professor yeah, yeah. Oh, you oh that's a yeah here oh. we can you. Play us off. Just, you could sing the <laughs> caption this or just the music. Five, yeah.
3: You all seen the Barbie movie? Because this is giving a lot of Ken vibes.
0: It okay.
3: really is. Ken- all right. <laughs> does Ken wear
2: orange t- uh, T-shirts about P.O. 11358?
0: Yeah, your T-shirt would do it itself. What's your, What does your T-shirt say, George? That, that I think, is a sufficient answer. Okay, yeah, that'll be, yeah, it's more than five words. I was inmate P.O. one one three
2: five eight o nines lawyer for... A few days, and all I got was this lousy t shirt saying, I'm inmate (laughs) PO1135821.
0: Very good. I have two, but they're five words total. The first is, What? Me worry? (laughs) And the second is, Here's Donnie!
1: Maybe you can come up with these five words by playing something that has a rhythm to five words.
0: I think we should maybe do a coda now in yeah. uh, in C or Thank you very much for being on Talking Fed. G, that was a G. I'm exactly.
3: everyone has a guitar but me i'm the only one without a guitar we
0: are out of. (laughs) but you're the singer we are out of here that's the talking feds happy labor day and we are out of here sad to say we are out of time for what's been a really informative and lively discussion Thank you very much to Melissa, Al, and George. And thank you very much listeners for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters, as well as additional exclusive material. This past week, we posted on Patreon a conversation with the Washington Post's Laura Meckler on her new book, Dreamtown, Shaker Heights, and the Quest for Racial Equity. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether they are for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate produced by Catherine Devine. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Talk to you later.